God's barheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family in the unity that you've provided from eternity past. Father, thank you so much for keeping it simple, keeping it real for us. Thank you for your patience and your loving kindness along the way. We know that we are faithless even though you are unerringly faithful. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us, those that are suffering even physically, emotionally, spiritually, that you heal them by means of your word. Uh, we just want them to know that we're with them in spirit and that we're praying for them and for their healthy return. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, that they might be evangelized before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Okay, um, someone's going to turn the AC down. It's like blasting. Todd, you should delegate that responsibility. The Lord is our confidence, part 32. Just put it on econ, Scott. Send in some help. You just said the heck with it and shut it off, didn't you? Yeah. Todd, I want you to delegate that moving forward because you keep failing at it. So get somebody else in here to do it. Here's where we began uh, on Sunday. It's really just the ripoff, right? Go to Proverbs 3.26. Proverbs 3, verse 26. This is where we get our message series title from a long time ago. This is where it, you know, all began. Not to be getting sentimental, but Proverbs 3.26. <clears throat> For the Lord will be your confidence. The Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. The past few months have been on this one topic. And it's been fantastic. I don't know about you, but it's been truly fantastic to see where the Spirit wants our affections, where our confidence should be uh, directed, and what the wellspring of that confidence actually is. As Scripture says, the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. And so we've had several months now on this topic, this one topic. And before that, uh, for the sake of... Um, a backdrop, if you would, we had 75 parts on the deceitfulness of sin. And so we had these two lengthy series. Uh, as I mentioned on Sunday, the Spirit is the one who lays out our curriculum. And so we have to think about that big picture. Why the deceitfulness of sin first, and then the Lord is our confidence. Why, the, why that way and not reversed even? Um, because one really amplifies the other. Um, I think this series has been a lot more edifying as a result of that long series on the deceitfulness of sin, because sin is very elusive. And uh, we 
uh, fleshly type individuals, we, I should say we with a flesh, uh, like to give it room. And in America, there's a thousand and one traps that um, have everything to do with our confidence and you know, bolstering the flesh and creature credit and all that kind of stuff. So again, the spirit is perfect in his curriculum, and he's the one who's laying all this out. Paul, a fellow shepherd, warned the churches every chance he could against the mistakes that we all make. One such primary example, of course, is placing our confidence where it should never be in self. Go to Philippians 3, verse 1. One primary example is placing our confidence where it should never be in self. Philippians 3, verse 1. <clears throat> Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware, there's your warning, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, Beware of the false circumcision, those who put self-confidence in the flesh, for example. Verse 3, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh up here on the board. This is a review point. Put no confidence in the flesh. It is wise to place ample emphasis on the word no in this statement. It means none, not at all. Put no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. And that includes all the little pockets we have, all the little areas that we don't like to uh, shine light on, you know, our little pet areas where we're confident in, confident in the flesh and the, <clears throat> excuse me, the world esteems us that way. It says put no confidence in the flesh. Even one iota of this brand of confidence increases our risk of stumbling. Good intention, then, is to rid our lives of it, all of it. Any confidence that we discover in ourselves, uh, in the self, uh, in our flesh, we need to get rid of it. And if you don't know how, pray on it. Read your Bibles and pray and keep to it. It's going to take a while. Some of you have been functioning on the flesh the strength of your human flesh in certain areas of your life for your entire life. You were, you were told to do it in grade school. You were told maybe by even your parents uh, or maybe some disgusting religion. You were told to rely on your flesh. And so it takes a long time to unravel that thing. This past week's blog was titled Looking in the Mirror, and it explained the danger of looking in the mirror and being enamored with self in a way that brings glory to self. In other words, we're going to talk a little bit more about this, the process even of leading up to the mirror. Um, but that's what that blog was about up here on the board, confidence in the flesh and view. The moment we look in the mirror and give the needle a little nudge off of the 100% God position, we have begun the process of our own demise. As soon as we just nudge it a little bit, you know, 99 and 1. That's all it needs. That's all the human flesh needs to 
to be encouraged to keep running and build momentum. Paul described his own street credibility to his audience. In other words, hey, listen, if anybody has, conf anybody has a cause for confidence in their flesh, it's me. That's basically what he said. Some of you could say the same thing in your own walks. Go, uh, Philippians 3, 4 now. Although I myself, <clears throat> you're still there, right? Okay. I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. So he was, you know, all that back in his day. And he said, if anybody has a right to boast in the flesh, it's me. Look at, look at my resume. And then he did something what I call revolutionary. Let's call it revolutionary thinking. We are to examine ourselves, compile all of our street credibility into one big heap of creature credit, and light a match to it. That's what we're supposed to, that's what is going to set us free. Do you understand? If we don't torch it, it still has its grip on us. You have to, figuratively speaking, obviously, make a big old pile of it and torch it. Light a match to it and say, goodbye, good riddance. That is the source of so much misery and agony in my life over these years. This is precisely what Paul did, Philippians 3, 7 and 9. And you know what? He was blessed for it. He was blessed for it. Look at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, this is past tense, of course, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We saw this on Sunday up here on the board. Not having a righteousness of my own, this really requires a bit of introspection for every believer in Christ. Our flesh is 100% self-righteous always there's never a time we can tame it temptation then is constant so we have to look at ourselves look in the mirror making sure that we have no confidence in the flesh uh, understanding that we have no righteousness of our own it has to be given to us by grace contrarily then to the point on the board is this statement but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Contrary to self-righteousness is Christ-righteousness, the mainstay of the new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17. This righteousness bears good fruit by grace through faith, such as confidence, a.k.a. also known as having faith that you are right before God. Knowing that you are right before God bears good fruit. That's been a theme 
of the past few weeks now, knowing that you are right, knowing that you can have faith in that righteousness, bears good fruit. And that, of course, one of those things is confidence. Knowing that you're right, having faith that you're right. That's, um, that's the definition of confidence, is it not? Of course it is. So Paul sought confidence the only way he knew how. Uh, once his self-confidence went up in flames, he understood that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit alone that we are able to abide in divine confidence. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And then finally, he gives us some really magnificent encouragement. Uh, it's really easy, I think, um, unless it's just me. I just fail all the time. Uh, it's just really easy to be discouraged. And if we're not careful, we can read certain um, passages of Scripture and become discouraged if we, if we read it in a vacuum. So it's good that we keep on reading. Look at verse 12. Now, this is Paul, right? Uh, he wrote the majority of the New Testament, for crying out loud. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do is one good thing forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. <clears throat> that means two seconds ago, uh, you'll never have back. Yesterday, the day before yesterday, you, you choose. Any time in the past, it's long gone. It's irrecoverable. You cannot get it back. And you have to hold on to that perspective because that's the perspective that Paul clung to, knowing that he was going to continue to make mistakes and knowing that his own self-righteous flesh would try to condemn him for making the mistakes. It sounds funny, but uh, we consume ourselves in the process. And that, again, is more fruit of that dastardly little roommate of yours called the flesh. Forgetting what lies behind up here on the board, yesterday is gone. You can't get it back. It's true. We can and should learn from our mistakes, but we shouldn't perseverate on them. We just shouldn't. Despondency, uh, maybe even a form of depression, results when we buy the lie that our past defines our future. For some of you, I understand, um, myself included, there's some things that we've done in the past that are just so grotesque that we just we have to let them go. We cannot let those things define who we are right now. Imagine if Paul did that. He's the perfect example. I mean, he went out and murdered Christians, all right? So he didn't do that. He said, forgetting what lies behind doesn't mean I didn't learn my lesson. Doesn't mean I didn't have to repent from it. It just means I'm not going to live in that estate. That's what the world tries to saddle you with. Uh, because if you're saddled with that kind of despondency, you're easy to control. It's basically got its hooks in you because you're in a weakened state. We have, uh, conversely, we have a living hope. 1 Peter 1.3 that we are entitled to as children of God. That does not mean, don't do like some do and say, oh, licentiousness. 
oh, now I have a license to sin since I always have this thing and I always have grace and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to go live like hell. Wrong, wrong, wrong. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. Guaranteed. God is not mocked. Some of you are saying, I know, I don't have to live in it, but I still reap the benefit. Or the, I'm still reaping the, um, what I've sown. You might have sown something grotesque 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and you still are reaping what you sowed. Doesn't mean you have to live in the guilt of it, but there's still some thing in your life that you have to deal with. Um, so don't do that mistake. Don't make that mistake regarding licentiousness. Verse 13, again, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the uh, prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful perspective, an encouraging perspective. You're going to fail tomorrow. Newsflash. You will. You're going to fail. Somebody's like, no, may it never. Oh, yeah? The fact that you just said that makes you arrogant, and that's a sin. Verse 15, let us therefore, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. He just did it from the pulpit. He literally just did that very thing. If you don't have the proper attitude, he's going to use the bald guy once in a while to tell you. You were just arrogant. You're going to fail tomorrow. Mental attitude sin, anybody? Some additional encouragement up here on the board. James 1.5 in the message. If you don't know what you're doing, pray to the Father. You always have access to that throne of grace. You can always pray to the Father. You say, I don't know how to pray. Well, you have God the Holy Spirit there helping you who intercedes. Remember, that's Holy Scripture. Who intercedes for you. So don't even worry about it. Have a conversation with God. It's about being honest. That's it. Not about being religious. About being honest. He'd rather have you honest for 10 seconds than religious for 10 hours a day. Because he can work with humility. He can work with honesty. There's nothing he can do other than discipline you if you're arrogant. He loves to help. That's the point. He does. You'll get his help and won't be condescended to when you ask for it. Verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude. God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. That would be the person who also typically has confidence in earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, 1 Peter 3, 3 and 15, both speak to a living hope. Up here on the board, here's 1 Peter 3, 15. 
but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And I add this, obviously, in the brackets. Begin this process with yourself. Begin that process of giving an account of the hope that is in you, in yourself. Don't be so hard on yourself that you throw your arms up, that you are forcing yourself to do a thing that the Bible doesn't want you to do, live in the past. You're supposed to forget it, forget what lies behind, be delivered from that thing. So you made a mistake. Join the club. Give an account for the hope that is in you and begin with yourself. Verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is our living hope, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Our transformation, our sanctification, it's all by the power of God. Now let's go back to where we began on Sunday and even this evening. Proverbs 3.26 up here on the board. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Now, on Sunday, the Spirit brought our attention to the concept of process. Process. I think it's easy to take snapshots. It's easy, um, whenever we talk about some form of sin, it's really easy and convenient to the flesh to itemize our sin. Say, all right, here it is. Boom, boom, boom. And they're all over it for the most part. It's boom, boom, boom. I already confessed them. I already repented. But the Spirit says, no, 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 no. That's not enough. That's not enough. That's playing a religious game. That's you just saying, okay, no, no, no. I don't want that. That's not process. So on Sunday, the Spirit opened up this topic of process. And this is in contrast to what we might call moments only, line items. Process versus moments. Snap, picture snapshots versus videos, let's say. Big difference. So the, the, the example on the table is with sinning. It's with sinning. The religious part of us likes to focus on moments only because it keeps self-examination and confession of sin in a tidy little box. We like to reflect and go, okay, that was a sin. So I sinned here, 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 and here. I suppose this one took a couple minutes. This one took five minutes. This was like 10 minutes. Okay, but for the most part, I have 24 hours in a day. So I basically put all these little sins in convenient little tidy boxes and I can kind of control them. Not looking at the big picture. Why do you keep sinning this way? Why are they the same sins they were yesterday and the day before? And why is it that you're still miserable? So the religious part of us likes to focus on moments only because it keeps self-examination and confession of sin 
in a little box. And as long as we can keep things in a box, we can manage it, you know? We can control it, even. Doesn't that just reek of Teshuka? <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Teshuka say, all right, I'll give up a little bit here if I can dominate the big picture. I'll concede a couple of little battles if I can win the war. The war is over your life. What dominates you? Your affections. Your lifestyle. That's where the war is. The little battles, those might be the little overt sins that you can look to and some of the covert ones. But the battle is over your soul. The battle is over you. So it's not in a tidy little box. It's, it's literally... You. And for some of you, that's scary. You say, I don't like that at all. It feels like I'm naked. Exactly. It feels like I'm totally exposed. Exactly. See, when you have nice, tidy little boxes, you can take little warts, right? Chip them off and put them in a box and put them on the shelf, right? All your little pet sins that you like to confess. But you don't ever talk about you. You don't ever talk about, where are your affections, honestly? Some of you are like, my affections aren't even in this church right now. <laughs> They're back home. I really want some more of that turkey I cooked. My affections are with my, I don't know, my best friend. They're not here, and so not my affections with them. My affections are for work. I'm so close to that promotion. Or I need to get back in good with my boss. Or whatever. Custom. I don't know what the heck the problem is, right? What about you? Where are your affections? That's what the Lord is after. The Lord is after you. Here's an analogy for you. <clears throat> Every day after work, an old man walks to the farm stand for some fresh eggs. He likes to take the railroad tracks behind the house because he finds it peaceful. Every day on the walk home, he trips over the same displaced railroad tie, breaks a couple of the eggs, and has to apologize to his wife. Every day. After 10 years of this, both are apparently slow learners. The wife finally says to the old man, why don't you just walk on the opposite side of the tracks where there aren't any railroad ties? jutting out to trip you up. The man says, you know, I never thought about that. What a great idea. So the old man made a change to his habit, and all was well until the day he died. The end. Moral of the story? For years, the man had to apologize to his wife for the, quote, sin of breaking eggs. Once he stepped back and looked at the bigger picture, he realized that the real issue was his routine, his process. So he homologeo, agreed with his wife's wisdom, confessing the larger sin, his sinful process, repented in humility, he changed his routine and was forever delivered. Again, the religious part of us likes to focus on moments only because it keeps self-examination and confessing, confession of sin in a little box. 
we'll, we'll confess it every time. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll suppose righteousness in doing so. But what is it the Spirit's saying? He's saying for as long as you keep those things in a box like that, it's just you trying to control things. And in, in reality, sin is controlling you, which is basically teshuka. Sin is controlling you. Oh, it'll concede the little ones, the broken eggs. But it does not want you to address the real issue. The real issue is you. Where are your affections? Up here on the board. The value of process. The Spirit wants us to focus on the process, not just what we see in that brief moment we're in front of the mirror, but those moments that stretch before and afterwards. By looking at the whole process, we break out of the box that the flesh likes to huddle in our perspectives on sin. Likes to put those things in a box. Again, the Spirit wants us to focus on the process, not just what we see in that brief moment we're in front of the mirror, but those moments, plural, the timeline, the thing that is your life, the process that stretch before and afterwards. By looking at the whole process, we break out of that box that the flesh likes to huddle in our perspectives on sin. Loves nothing more than for you to take all your little line items of sin and put them in little boxes so that you can control them. Or think you control them, but in reality, who's the, who's the marionette? Who's, who's the puppeteer? Sin. It's got you doing this little thing. La, 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 la. You just keep doing that thing. You take the battles. You can go to church and you can go to prayer and, and you know, in your own flesh brag about how, uh, how um, repentant you are over your line item sins. But I know better. And I'm going to keep leading you around by your nose. James wrote about this process. Go to James 1.23. James 1, verse 23. <clears throat> James 1, 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless." In other words, you can't look in the mirror, walk away, and forget. You can't look in the mirror, go to God in prayer, repent of your line item sins, walk away directly back to where the flesh is dominating you. That little thing you called life. The process, even, that you go through. From our previous messages, we have a recurring principle up here on the board. 
The approach to truth dictates what you find. Okay? The approach to truth. You walk up to a mirror, you're approaching the truth about yourself. How are you approaching it? Let's get this over with. Let's get this over with. Yep, yep, yep. I'll confess it. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, I'm good. Boom. Yeah, done. Out. We don't go to a confessional box where some pervert's in there listening to your sins. And then you're out and you're good to go for the next day. That's, that's not, that, has, that literally is the exact opposite of the heart of Christ. That type of religion, Jesus Christ called hypocritical. And what did he despise more than hypocrisy? Basically nothing. Basically nothing. He, he despised hypocrisy. But isn't it fair to say that we're hypocrites when we do that thing, when we take the line item approach, put them in little tidy little boxes and put them on the shelf, and then go right back to our lifestyle? Isn't that hypocritical? I think so. I think the Bible tells us that's exactly what it is. So it matters a lot. When you examine yourself, you're not just examining yourself while you're in front of the mirror. How do you approach? What's the process look like? How do you approach the mirror, and are you an effectual doer after you leave the mirror? It's not just about discovering things. Be like, oh, oh, wow, I never saw that in myself. Okay, see you later. Be like your best friend come up to you and say, you know, every time you say that to me, you wound me deeply. Oh, I never knew. Okay, good. And you just say it to them again. Oh, I never knew. Thanks for telling me. Okay. Five minutes later, you say the same thing. Isn't that, what's wrong with that picture? Could you, do you even call it? Could, could we, the Bible isn't, I don't think it necessarily talks about it, but could we almost call that superficial repentance? Isn't there like a superficiality to that kind of treatment of sin? Yeah. Yeah. From our previous 75-part series, we mustn't ever underestimate the pervasiveness of sin in our lives. Never underestimate the pervasiveness of sin in our lives. If we play the aforementioned religious trick of sin moments only versus the process of sinning, we leave the entire examination of lifestyle outside of our tidy little box. And when this happens, a massive amount of sin remains unaddressed in our lives. We have to think about this principle. Someone was bold enough to tell me that this principle makes them cringe. Makes them cringe. Why? Because they're um, convicted by it. And that's, that's the weight of truth on a person who's living in sin. It's not because Pastor Ed said it with any kind of color or strength or, uh, you know, fancy speech, as Paul would say. Uh, it just is. When you know something's the truth and it's convicting and you're outside of that truth, it's heavy on you. And that's a, that's a gift from God. It's not supposed to be light. Knowing that you're living in a certain sin it's not supposed to be light. It's supposed to be heavy. It's supposed to weigh you down. It's supposed to bring, like I wrote in the blog a couple of times ago, depression has a purpose. 
It brings you low. brings you right down to your knees. And that's a, that's a gift. God disciplines those he loves, correct? So it's a gift to be pressed low. It's a gift to realize, I didn't even know why I was miserable. Now I know. I was like the old man on the tracks, confessing broken eggs for 10 years, when all along I should have been on the other side of the tracks, not tripping at all. Sin is the cause of misery. You don't believe me? Go right back to the fall in the garden. Before that, there was no misery. It wasn't until sin entered into the scene that there was any misery at all. Some of you are like, I hate my body. Talk to Adam and Eve. They were ashamed. It was like among the first things that we read about. They looked at each other and they were like, dude, we're naked. They probably didn't say dude. But why would that bother them? Why were they all of a sudden miserable? Sin didn't exist before that. Sin is the cause of misery. Always remember that. And stop blaming other people. That is the, that is the, that's another trick that Satan has propagated in this world. It's always someone else's fault. It's always this person's fault. It's my husband's fault. You married him. It's my wife's fault. You married him. It's my kid's fault. You, you, you had him. You have a part in this thing, correct? It's so-and-so's fault. It's my boss's fault. You took the job. It's my employees. You hired them. You know what I'm saying? Why is it always everybody else's? Why is it not you? Why can't you just look in the mirror and say, oh, yeah, I really am the cause of all my own misery. Sin, whether we like it or not, is the cause of misery. Now, I'm not saying sin from without doesn't affect us. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying what the Bible says is look at yourself. That's where you start. Because we're all hypocrites. We all have big old logs in our eye. We're going to take specks out of our brother's eye. Sin is the cause of misery. We are commanded in Galatians 5.16 to walk by the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. This is an issue of tapping the right power source. And as we reflect on that, we think, well, Jesus walked perfectly with pure power and therefore with unflappable confidence. Jesus walked perfectly. How? He had pure power. And when you have pure power, you have confidence. Appear on the board. Jesus' example, he walked confidently because he was ever filled with the Spirit. Jesus never sinned. He walked with power, a power he has since made available to all of his sheep through the filling of the Spirit. This takes us back to our primary principle from our work on the power of the Spirit. We had sort of a, it's been sort of an ongoing little sidebar. But I think the Spirit just said, do not forget how this all happens. Do not think that you're ever going to be confident without my power involved. Walking with power. Faith has power because the Spirit endows it. We've looked at all this scripture. Synthesizing what we've learned so far in the series up here on the board. Walking then with power. It's true that our confidence must be rooted in faith in Christ, but it's also true 
that for said faith to animate us, to enable us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, a la Colossians 1.10, it must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The encouragement from Holy Scripture is that we always have access to it. Up here on the board, 2 Timothy 1.7, in the Amplified. For God did not give us a spirit, a spirit of timidity or cowardice or fear, but he has given us a spirit of power and of love and of sound judgment and personal discipline, abilities that result in a calm, well-balanced mind and self-control. Doesn't that just describe a confident person? Abilities that result in a calm, well-balanced mind and self-control. That's a picture of confidence. And we have access to it. That is the point. The net-net up here on the board from Sunday. The Holy Spirit empowers the spiritual life. Because of Him, we have Christ's righteousness. We have faith, and therefore we have confidence. Because of Him, we have Christ's righteousness. We are baptized into union with Him. We have faith, and we have confidence. One last time with one of our pivotal passages. I'm going quickly. These are all points of review. Isaiah 32, 17 up here on the board. And the work of righteousness will be peace. And the service of righteousness, also translated the effect of righteousness or the wages of righteousness, quietness and confidence forever. In theology proper, we refer to the experiential righteousness or this experiential righteousness as imparted righteousness. It's a gift given to us, which is just a fancy way of saying that the Holy Spirit will empower divine righteousness in time to our account, in the experiential sense. Here's where we ended on Sunday. The Lord is our confidence. Confidence in the Spirit's power to transform us is tantamount to confidence in Christ. They are one and the same. It's Christ's Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ. It's God the Holy Spirit. It's the power source. Confidence in, spirits, in the Spirit's power to transform us is tantamount to confidence in Christ. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we considered this type of confidence where the apostles go to Acts 4.13 Acts 4.13. We looked at the apostles as a perfect example of this kind of confidence that the Spirit of Christ enables in believers, that Christ had 100% of the time, that he exhibited 100% of the time. Acts 4.13 now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. They associated their confidence with Jesus, you see. They said this confidence is in this person, Jesus, who really threatened them. Their confidence, though, was a function of their faith. Now, without dissecting the psychology of it, we know that Supernatural faith is threatening to those who lack it, namely unbelievers. And Jesus prepared us for this up here on the board. John 15, 18-19. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. The world hates that you have faith supernaturally imparted. The world hates that you have any confidence outside of the human flesh. Because when you sidestep the whole economy of creature credit, you've debilitated your enemies. Does that make sense? When you say, no, 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 I have a much better currency. I don't need to rise in the ranks that you hold fast to. I don't need your currency of creature credit. I have something else called grace. And in that I have faith. I don't need this thing. Because of that, anybody, quote unquote, above you is going to be threatened by that. Because what you just described is unattainable to them. And what you just described literally put them below the bottom rung. The bottom rung being just being saved. And for that, they despise you. That is exactly what Jesus was talking about. This is exactly what he was talking about. You, the faith in Jesus Christ immediately dethrones anybody abiding in the world the worldly economy of creature credit immediately puts them under the underneath the lowest of low rungs and they know it because they know God and they know he exists and they have to as Romans 1 would say they have to persistently deny him to uphold this economy Satan's economy we call this spiritual prejudice and as we know prejudice always produces hate so we might summarize it this way up here on the board your faith is offensive grace is offensive to man any result of it is also offensive to man for example godly faith that results in confidence confounds irritates and becomes a cause for hatred against the possessor of it they cannot they just cannot understand it they can't it's 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 impossible for them says holy scripture because it's spiritually appraised and so anything they don't understand is the root system for prejudice which is the root system for what hate that's why you are offensive unless now let's just put a little couple of things together here unless you're that person who does the little trick with the little boxes you might not be offensive at all to the people you work with because you actually never exhibit Christ-like behavior you literally look and act like them for the most part and so you never have any friction in the world that's one of the ways you know you're kind of you know (laughs) Riding along with the world. If the world never antagonizes you, like Jesus said it will, not kinda, it will, then you might be running, you might be running with them. You might be playing this ridiculous game that the Spirit just took 20 minutes prior to this point to talk about. If you're not offensive to the world, you have to look in the mirror really hard and say, why is that? Why am I like the only one? Why am I like the only one who never seems to get um, attacked? And by the way, 
for the last week and a half, two weeks, I've been, it's been gruesome. Never say publicly that you've been delivered. <laughs> Write a blog on it, oh, yuck. Incomings like nukes, right? That's how I know I'm on the right track, though. If that didn't happen, I'd be like, and some of you are like, hey, it doesn't happen to me. If you're not offensive, you have to look in the mirror and say, okay, obviously something is awry. But that's between you and the Lord. Verse 13, still in Acts 4. All right, let's read it again. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. This confidence isn't reserved for famous apostles only. Go to uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 4. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. You say, oh, well, that's great, fine and dandy for them. They walked with Jesus. Well, so settle down there. Hmm. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Second Corinthians 3, 4, such confidence we have through Christ. Any questions? We can have confidence too, as long as it's through Christ, toward God. That, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. In other words, uh, put no confidence in the flesh, to borrow from previous scripture. Put no confidence in the, in the flesh. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. It's what we are in Christ Jesus. That's why I call it, instead of self-righteousness, Christ-righteousness. Right? Instead of self-confidence, it's Christ-confidence. Because anything that we have that makes us anything worthwhile is from God. Any adequacy we might have, as Paul wrote here to the Corinthians, is from God. As soon as we lose sight of that, like some of you are going to do as soon as you leave here. You're going to go back to your lifestyle. You're going to go back to that, quote, process, and you're going to trip over the railroad track again tomorrow and the next day and the next day, and you're going to figure out that while you were laughing at that old guy because it took him 10 years, it's you. It's taken you 10 years. You keep tripping over the same thing the same way. The only difference maybe between that poor old man who seemed to be kind of dumb in you, is that you know better. You've been taught, and you like it on that side, and you want to trip and fall into your little sin. Oh, but I didn't. You know that one? Oh, but I didn't mean it. The whole thing's premeditated. I don't know how, oh, I don't know how it happened. You know how it happened? It happened yesterday and the day before. You tri look, literally has your toenail stuck in the side of the piece of wood. It's wedged in there from the day before. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? How did, how did this, everybody does that. How does this happen? Seriously? You, you, I, need to, I need to answer that for you? Yes, because I, I need to hate on you. I need to, like some transference to go on. Because I'm, I'm kind of hating myself right now. I need somebody else to hate on. You know how that goes. We're ridiculous. 
Confidence is certainly in our bag. We're made adequate by God. That's a promise from God. I am what I am by the grace of God, right? That's, how, that's where your adequacy comes from. It started at salvation. Read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? Lest none of us boast. We don't save ourselves. We don't produce good works in ourselves. Everything's from Him. As soon as we forget that, we become friends of the world again. Right back to our old, quote-unquote, process. Synthesize the following up here on the board. <clears throat> and keep your eye on the value, the value of a pure and righteous heart. And that leads us to confidence. Keep your eye on the value of a pure and righteous heart. And that's what leads us to confidence. The blessing of confidence. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those that are pure in heart are blessed. John said in 1 John 3, 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. That's a blessing. A heart that doesn't condemn us is a pure heart. Does that make sense? Jesus said, if you have a pure heart, you're going to be blessed. John said, if you, if you have that pure heart, you're going to be confident. That's a blessing. I know a lot of, I know a lot of Christians that have what is best described as a pseudo-confidence. They wear a good face, but when the proverbial hits the fan, their world caves in. Their faith doesn't hold up. So that confidence is really a facade. And I'm not saying that to pick on anybody. I'm saying it so that they might be delivered, that their heart isn't pure because they don't have the blessing of confidence. Something's awry in their heart. Could be, they could be just like the old man. Something's not right in their heart, and so they're missing out on the divine blessing of confidence. Another, stated differently, they know that they're wrong, and they're convicted by it. Right? They know that they're wrong, they're not going to do it, and to that person it's accounted as sin. And where does misery always come from? Sin. So you string all the, what the Spirit's been saying, it's pretty easy to see. We're after a pure heart. We're after a righteous heart. Paul said in Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. We want faith. We want faith. We want to know that we're right before God. That's John, 1 John 3.21. I don't want my heart condemned. I want my heart to be pure so that I have real confidence. Not that fake crap that fails every time things go wrong. Every time I'm put under the pressure, like I just described, the past week and a half, my faith hasn't failed. I may have thrown a couple of mental tantrums, but that's okay. But my faith hasn't failed. And that's beautiful. When your faith holds up under that kind of pressure from every direction, you can have confident, confidence that you're right. You, that you're on the right side of the track. Does that make sense? That's a beautiful place to be. That is a beautiful place to be because you can sleep at night. Ask Tammy. For months before my 
Epiphany. Trouble sleeping the whole nine yards. First night, she says, after literally the first night, she goes, boy, you kind of slept like a baby last night, huh? I'm like, duh. Right? Lights out. Deep sleep. Go figure, right? God doesn't lie. Come, come clean with God. Let him wash your heart pure, your thoughts, your mind, your process. Let him scrub it clean. Sleep like a baby. You want to arm wrestle with God? You're up all night. Hmm. To repeat an earlier point, we have confidence when we know we are right, a.k.a. when we have faith in our righteousness. Uh, yeah, one more. If we have a pure heart, it will bear the fruit of righteousness. Here's an old friend, and then i got to close. Go to Philippians 1.9. Philippians 1.9, then I'll close. If we have a pure heart, it will bear the fruit of righteousness. A pure heart means that you are not condemned by it, that you know that you're right before God. And as a result, you have confidence before God. Philippians 1.9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are uh, excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here's the result of being righteous, and I've got to close. Simply defined, confidence is faith in our righteousness. That's it. We're almost at the end of the series. Isn't that something? Isn't it always funny how he's like, just percolates it, like distills it down to something like one sentence on an orange slide? <laughs> it's like I said a bazillion times, guys. The only reason it takes so long is because we're all messed up. The complexity is not from God. God is not a God of confusion. The complexity is from the sin in us. This is what it boils down to. Simply defined, confidence is faith in our righteousness. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for keeping it simple. Thank you for making the truth available to us, for that is what sets us free. For that, we are ever so grateful, Father. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes and then out to a world that's just decaying. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.